0: So we are in our second week of our annual stories from the seats series where we believe that God works through ordinary people and their ordinary lives to reveal his extraordinary love and his extraordinary power. And So this morning I'm, I'm going to introduce to you Brian and Giselle Steenhook. Brian and Giselle are new to the Orchard staff. Brian is the new lead pastor in our Grundy County and Lincoln Center area and he's also overseeing the Waverly Satellite at this point. And I even know a couple of times when I had to be called out of town due to a family emergency, Brian has so kindly filled in for me. In the pulpit, so I'm grateful to him. Um, Brian comes to us with an incredible track record of ministry, as well as his wife, Giselle, who's simply amazing, as are their four kids. So this morning, in some of the reading I was doing, I read a quote from author and playwright Thornton Wilder. He wrote the play Our Town, if you're familiar with that play. And he said this. He said, In love's service, In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. In love's service, only the wounded soldiers can serve. And we believe this is true here at Orchard. And Brian and Giselle, like all the rest of us, even every single leader here, are wounded soldiers. But they are also brave soldiers, willing to share, honestly, some of their wounds in the hope that their story of redemption might bring God's healing and hope to those of us who listen. So I want to invite Brian and Giselle up and um, basically just hand things over to them. I, I pray that you'll pay amazing attention to this story this morning. Welcome.
1: Thank you. Good morning. It is uh, good for us to be here, and uh, Giselle and I are, are happy to be here and to be able to share with you our story. Really offer it as, uh, as an offering to the Lord um, and also to you, with this uh, hope that, that this will paint a picture, and uh, that picture will be one of, of help and hope and healing. Um, it's, it's just a picture. It's not the whole of our lives, but it is a significant part of who we are, and, uh, and it's a picture of brokenness and a picture of, of God's grace, and so uh, we, we offer it to you this morning. How many of you know this, uh, the show, the Andy Griffith Show, and remember seeing that as a kid? Yeah? Well, if ever someone had a Mayberry experience growing up, it was probably me. I grew up in a thriving but small and rural community with a strong sense of place and family. My parents, grandparents, and almost all of my extended family lived and were born within a few miles of where I lived. We didn't have a lot, but we are a tight knit family that was held together through our connection to the land and our loyalty to one another and hard work. Sound familiar? One of the many good legacies of my Mayberry experience was a heritage of faith that was passed to me from my parents and grandparents. We went to church twice on Sundays and usually once during the week for catechism instruction. Maybe that sounds familiar to some of you. Many of my childhood memories were centered on church and church activities, and it was those experiences, conversations, and people that had a profound effect on shaping my faith and trust in Christ and His church. People like Daryl, Judy, Millie, Ron, and a host of other ordinary Christ followers invested in my spiritual development and helped me put my trust in Christ at a young age. It was when I was 15 years old that I made public profession of faith and participated in my first communion. Sound familiar? While I am grateful for that influence and direction now, I'm not so sure I appreciated or understood it fully. Back then. Nonetheless, it was that church family and a pastor who put his arms around me and told me, Brian, I think you'd be a good pastor someday, that left a profound impression upon me that I still have not forgotten. Maybe it had its own dark side as well. In a community where hard work was valued and often expected, and the phrase cleanliness is next to godliness was more than just a phrase, It was a way of life. Weakness, let alone failure or other dirty laundry, was not looked upon with much favor. It was in that context I learned my first lessons on shame. My parents, while currently celebrating over 50 years of marriage and going strong, were once young teenagers. My mom was 17 and dad 19, finding themselves pregnant with my older brother. Out of wedlock. As you can imagine, that brought a sense of shame to them. But they made a commitment to each other, married and with very modest beginnings, made a life for themselves and our family. However, I grew up knowing nothing about their story. In fact, I first heard about it from a kid we were family friends with when we were playing together. And he mentioned, well, your parents had to get married. I didn't even know what that meant. So, what? Yeah. My parents just didn't mention their struggle or their circumstance. And so it was this family secret that reinforced the idea that you didn't talk about your troubles and you certainly didn't air your dirty laundry. That was just not customary in Mayberry. In Mayberry, I learned a lot about hard work and family and to talk mostly about appropriate things in the company company of others, because, you know, it was better to be polite than honest. But like most boys my age, I found it hard to directly express my true feelings or navigate private matters. And when a person who was not much older than me at the time uh, coerced me into doing something that I knew to be inappropriate, I said nothing. In our Mayberry culture, I lived in silence and never talked of it again. Later, as I grew into young adulthood, I had a hard time distinguishing between shame and disappointment. In my world, failure was, wasn't an option, and most everything should be perfect. I couldn't even live up to my own expectations. As I look back, I did well in school as a student, a musician, and an athlete. I think I was even a pretty good kid. But I wasn't well equipped to talk about my own disappointments in school or sports or life. Those disappointments felt more like failures and a reflection of me rather than the normal ups and downs of life. I didn't quite understand that God valued us for who we were, his beloved, not for what we did or didn't do. I was not in tune with grace and God's undying love for us, for me. Fast forward, by now I'm married to my high school sweetheart (laughs) and former tulip queen. I married royalty. (laughs) I married up, as most people say. Life was good. I was learning more about God's grace in college and sensing God's call to ministry. It was through the encouragement of professors and others that I pursued seminary, and a traditional route to serving the church as a pastor. But just before we began an adventure in seminary, we were approached by a regional minister about a summer job doing research for the Reformed Church regarding the possibility of starting new churches. So we traveled to places like Lee's Summit, Missouri, Wichita, Kansas, Dallas, and Fort Worth, Texas, and San Antonio, Texas. We wrote up reports that helped the church decide about where to plant New churches. It was exciting to me, and a spark was lit. For the first time, I saw the church on mission, and I began to wonder how I could be involved in helping others encounter Jesus by starting something new. And so I began seminary. To be honest, seminary was hard, not because of the academics, but because I was so checked out. I was ready to be done with school and move on into life and meaningful service which I didn't equate with the academics of seminary. When I did start ministry, I found the church was not always this ideal place, but populated by frail and fallible human beings, and much of my role as a pastor was helping people on this journey of faith. And I began to struggle with knowing where or how I could possibly share my own insecurities or disappointments, my own dirty laundry, Without somehow feeling a failure, I was afraid to risk rejection if someone knew how vulnerable or weak I really felt. So in 2002, Giselle and I are now our growing family. We have four children. We're fully engaged in the planting of a church in Ames. It seemed this was a culmination of this call of God to be a part of something new that God had begun stirring in me some years before. The church was young, energetic, idealistic. It was cool. We loved this environment, and we loved the people. And it was thriving in many ways, and so was our family. But to be honest with you, I was not. My safe place, my compartmentalized life, my center of shame had become fertile ground for the evil one. I was caught up in the patterns of a sexual addiction that was fueled by the Internet and all that was offered there. I acted out, and in November of that year, my world was blown apart when I was caught. Suddenly, my private world was there for all to see. In the next few weeks and months, I threw my family and our church upside down. I really didn't think it was going to hit me today. but I confessed my sin to Giselle, resigned from the church, And began the difficult process of confession and repentance. It was painful and hard and deeply disappointing for everyone I knew. And yet it was there that I encountered grace.
2: My world was shattered. At the time of Brian's devastating revelation, I was in a sweet season of life, having been married 15 years to my best friend and enjoying our kids ages 9, 7, 4, and 2, leading family and children's ministries at our church and relishing in some meaningful relationships with neighbors and friends. I had spent most of my growing up years in Pella, Iowa and received a degree in elementary education and music education from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. I had a bit more of an exciting birthplace than some of my school friends, having been born in Brigham City, Utah, where my father was serving with the Home Missions Board of the Christian Reformed Church. And for a little while, my family lived in California, but by the time I was school age, my parents had settled back in Iowa. When I was eight years old, my mom fell critically ill She was rushed by ambulance to the University of Iowa Hospital where she would remain for the next three months paralyzed from the neck down, breathing only with the help of a respirator. My two siblings and I stayed in the homes of various family and friends while my father took up temporary residence in Iowa City. Slowly my mom began to heal from paralysis and was moved from the local hospital just before I was to begin my third grade year. When my mom did get to return home, she had a rigorous schedule of physical therapy and a huge adjustment to living with permanent paralysis on her right side and a very limited breathing capacity. All through this journey of crisis, I saw my parents cling to God. Many tears were shed. Many prayers said, and although the pain was great, my parents maintained and still demonstrate to this day a sweet spirit of trust. Indeed, the fruits of the Spirit were mild to me on a daily basis. My parents demonstrated an incredible tenacity and loyalty to one another. I was just thinking this morning when we were all singing together, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow, you didn't know it, but I think we were singing a tribute to my parents and how they've lived. They lived out for me and before my siblings. They acted out their covenant of marriage that in sickness and in health Till death do us part. So on that cold November night in two thousand two, when I learned of Brian's destructive and unfaithful behaviors, everything about our own marriage vows were about to be tested. I remember that night as if it were in slow motion, silently crying out to God and thinking, This is what it feels like to have your life turned upside down, Hmm. shattered. Brian was on his knees before me, repenting of his sin and asking for my forgiveness. And how was I going to respond? If anyone were to ask you today how I know that God is real, I can say that I know my God is real because my response in the greatest crisis in my life up until that point didn't come from me. It came from God. So before I went to bed, I told Brian I would forgive him even though I had no idea when that would happen or what that would look like. Well, the first thing that forgiveness looked like was shock. I faced the hard task of incorporating Brian's betrayal into my reality. I'd always figured that the first step to protecting our marriage from unfaithfulness was not to assume it would never happen to us. The problem was I just thought that if anything like these patterns were present in our relationship, I would at least have a clue. And I had none, absolutely none. After the shock came deep, deep waves of grief. Grieving needed to happen before I could even think about forgiving. If I could characterize that season in a word, it would be loss. I experienced the death of trust, of a dream, of a commitment, of purity, of security, of status, of relationships, of confidence, of innocence. We lost our roles at church and had to leave the church body itself. We lost income, insurance, purpose, and place. Before I could do any kind of healing, I needed to admit the extent of my sadness and not just hurry past all this pain and loss, all this grief, just to move on and feel better. Brian's fall had been very public and painful, and the way I remember describing my shattered heart in a journal entry was roadkill. How do you resurrect a trampled, run-over, lifeless heart? I was at the end of myself and in a place where only God could bring back new life. Probably the next way to describe what forgiveness looked like was it looked like a lot of work. We were involved in intensive and extensive counseling. I read book after book and wrote in my journal page after page. I had the hard work of making a choice. I was faced with circumstances beyond my control that had to be dealt with. I knew I had to choose whether to face this devastation with or without my husband, but face it, I must. So I made the conscious decision to face it with him. This knowledge that I had made this choice empowered me. I realized that the path of forgiveness was my best option in order to give me what I wanted. I wanted my marriage. I wanted my family together. I wanted wholeness for me and this man I loved. And as I considered pros and cons of forgiveness, I also knew it was the path to freedom. Forgiveness was my way of refusing to be bound up by Satan's lies and the sin that had shattered our lives. Sometimes forgiveness looks slow. It happened bit by bit and day by day. Sometimes it felt confusing with residual anger and grief mixed in. Triggers of doubt, worry, anxiety. They would paralyze me and sometimes they still pop up today. Only God can forgive wholesale style. In a marriage between two very imperfect people, forgiveness looks messy. However, my pledge to forgive had to be done by choice and free will given as a gift. Otherwise, it would just be a bargaining chip. My own attempt to control, manipulate, or put the shattered pieces of my own life together, and I could not. Another thing that forgiveness looked like, in a way, if I dare to say, was forgiving God. I was angry with God for feeling I had already learned some pretty hard life lessons and often didn't see what good all this pain was doing. What about all the times I had prayed for my husband and for our marriage? Over time, I began to see that my attempt to figure out what I was supposed to be learning was really a protection mechanism. If I learned what I was supposed to be learning, then I wouldn't have to go through all this pain, right? Instead, I discovered I needed to set aside my attempt to control and protect myself and rest in God's presence in the midst of pain. That needed to be enough. I needed to not try to learn, and in that, God was teaching me much. Forgiveness looked like humility, Brian's humility before me and others, and my humbling reminder that I, too, am a sinner in need of God's forgiveness and grace found only in my Savior, Jesus Christ. Forgiveness looked like trusting God to provide what I need. My husband was neither my enemy, nor was he God. He could not provide for all my emotional security and needs. That's God's job. I can tell my husband what I want, but I need to trust God for all that I need and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I will be okay. Forgiveness looked like community. We were part of an amazing, selfless, dedicated team of people we called our care team. These couples met with us time and time again. They listened, consoled, challenged, prayed, advised, and loved us. They oversaw a process of restoration for both our marriage and ministry. We owe a debt of gratitude to each one of them. God also provided friends and neighbors who didn't abandon us when things came crashing down. We know the gift of true friendship. Finally, I would say forgiveness looked like growth and new beginnings. God was rebuilding our marriage as we rediscovered his grace and one another. I was growing in prayer and abiding with God. He gave us hope. And on our 16th anniversary before a group of family and friends, we renewed our marriage vows. We've now been married almost 28 years, and this growth is continuing by the grace of God. Sometimes it looks pretty clumsy, but I know that in God's economy, no pain is wasted. We have faced many other challenges and obstacles, things that are not for this time to share, maybe another time. But I believe that God can use our story to encourage others. I have had the holy privilege of journeying with others, particularly a few other women over the years who are on their own road to forgiveness and trusting God to rebuild shattered lives as only He can. One of my favorite passages is from Psalm 34, verses 4-5 through 5, that says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me. He, d- he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, Their faces are never covered with shame.
1: Well, as the leader of our home and the one who had faltered, uh, one of the hardest things I felt I needed to do was to communicate our situation to our children. So I tried to use some images. First, I drew some pictures, which you can see here, of a tree. And that tree is, uh got a weed growing up with it. And that weed is pulled out. And then the tree it looks a little bit like a Charlie Brown Christmas tree. But then the third picture was one of hope. One that I hoped to be. <laughs> a tree that is full and fruitful and flourishing. That picture was a painting by my then 10-year-old daughter. She gave that to me as a gift. And it had these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Those words became very meaningful for me. In fact, it became an important image of hope that I still cling to. That I still long for. Another one came from 1 Corinthians 9 verse 24. You just read that. It says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Now no one would probably accuse me of being some awesome runner. I often joke that what looks like walking is actually running, (laughs) for me. But I do know one thing, that for the rest of life that God gives me, I want to run, or walk, or limp, or crawl. Or whatever it takes to live this life of faith in joy and in gratitude because I am a sinner who has been redeemed by grace and one who has been deeply loved by those closest to me. In what has been made renowned by the film Chariots of Fire, Eric Liddell, who was a competitor in the 1924 Olympics, was in a race in a pack of runners breaking for the lead when suddenly he was thrown off balance and crashed heavily in the infield grass. In an astonishing act of courage and perseverance, he got up and began running again making his way back into the race, which he eventually won, going away. Eric Liddell is a person that I admire and desire to emulate. Even though I may have fallen hard, I want to finish well. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, I want to run in such a way as to get the prize. Thanks for hearing us.
0: I just want to say one thing before I pray, for, well, two things before I pray for Brian and Giselle. First of all, I hope you guys understand how hard this is. To stand up in front of people and be honest. But this is who we are as a church. And I don't think there's any better morning to say that again. We are a church where we're going to tell the truth. Second thing, I uh, weeded my garden yesterday. I'm just thinking back to Brian's picture. And I have these little weeds I think they're they're something like a morning glory, but they bring me no happiness. And they they grow real close to a plant. And if I don't pluck them early, they will entwine themselves around that beautiful plant, and before I know it, they will take it down. And when I let them go too long, they wrap themselves so tightly around the plant's stem with these little sticky tendrils that I can't disentangle them. And every time I go out early and I see those little weeds coming up, I think about all the times Jesus used weeds and plants and soil and gardens as examples. And every time I pluck those little stinking weeds early, I think to myself, you've got to pluck weeds out of your life early before they grow and wrap themselves so tightly around you that they take you down. And I just feel compelled in my spirit to say in this room this morning, if you are fighting a weed, pluck it now before it takes you down. I think that I think that comes from God. So let me let me pray for these guys and pray for all of us this morning. Father, you say that he who is forgiven much loves much. And I also believe that she who forgives much is so deeply loved. And I just thank you for Brian and Giselle's marriage and the picture that it paints for us of what living in a covenant looks like. I pray that their marriage will be strong and beautiful and a, an oak of righteousness for the display of your glory. And I pray for their ministry in Grundy and in Waverly and and here in Cedar Falls, Waterloo, in the Cedar Valley. I just pray, Father, that you would bless them with power and strength and love and grace and mercy. I want to pray this morning for every single marriage in this room. I want to pray for those of us who struggle with shame and secrets and we think we don't have anybody we can talk to. I want to pray for those of us who have somehow been led to believe that prayer is a place where we're supposed to be good rather than being honest. And church is a place where we're supposed to wear a mask rather than finding a friend that we can confess to who will offer us the grace and the mercy and the power of Jesus. God, have mercy on us. For we are simply sinners saved by grace. Thank you for Brian and Giselle's courage and bravery and beauty this morning. Thank you for your grace.
2: For without it, none of us
0: could stand. Amen.